Welcome to the first episode of Conflict Week, a podcast dedicated to providing weekly bite-sized updates of the many underreported conflicts happening around the world. I'm your host, Eric Mayhall, and this week we're going to be looking at the protests in France and Colombia, Ethiopia's civil war and emerging humanitarian crisis, the re-escalation of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, and finally the escalation of violence in America's election protests. Let's waste no time and get started. We're going to get started today by taking a look at the protests happening all over France. These protests stem from an incident on November 21st where a black man was being filmed being beaten by police during an arrest. The Subsequently, the identities of those officers were revealed online, which then led to legislation by the ruling party in France to say that revealing the identities of police officers is now illegal, which means that any recordings of police officers before they are made public, the officers' faces, and uh, identifying features need to be hidden. Obviously, that did not sit well right with the French people. The French have a time-honored tradition of overthrowing governments and protesting in the streets. I'm sure everybody remembers the Yellow Vest protests of 2018 that um, eventually you know, found their way to be effective. So right now, uh, thousands, thousands are in the streets trying to change this legislation. Macron has already backtracked a little, stating that he would rewrite the legislation and is open for feedback on it. The protesting bloc immediately said that's not good enough. We want to see this thrown out entirely. Um, and rightfully so. You know, this is an attack on freedom of press. It's a shocking author- authoritarian move for a Western democracy to make. It also makes it impossible to hold the police accountable for protesters or journalists. If they're on the ground recording or taking live streams, there's no way that they can actually blur out faces before that goes to the public. So it reduces on-hand accountability a great deal. It also makes the police able to decide who's a journalist and who's not a journalist. It endangers uh, freedom of the press incredibly, probably at a scale that we haven't seen in a Western democracy in 20 or 30 years now. So about 100 to 200 people have been arrested arbitrarily over the weekend in France as the government tries harder and harder to get a handle on this situation. With tensions continuing to rise and no solution in sight, Macron has moved the goalpost to try to have a summit in January to find a solution for the issues at hand. That being said, it does not look like the French government is winning this war and the protesters will likely come out on top with seeing this legislation being thrown out. That being said, we do not have all the details from the ground. Most of the details I'm reporting now came from yesterday or the day before. So we'll continue to collect information this week and give you updates on the situation as that develops. Next, we're going to head down to Colombia to take a look at one of the more unreported conflicts going on around the world right now. Traditional news media hasn't really talked about the protests in Colombia since early September, but a lot of freelance journalists as well as protesters are providing coverage from the ground on social media, which is helping us fill a lot of the gaps. Now, the protests really started in Colombia in late 2019 when Javier Ordonez was murdered by Colombian police. Um... It's a video very comparable to the death of George Floyd. He was a stun gun was used on him several times as he begged for his life before ultimately being left unresponsive and passing away. 
So that's where these protests started. But now, in today's world, in 2020, after the pandemic, after lockdowns, people are really protesting a large variety of issues. Colombia has a history of corruption. It is very complicated from a political standpoint, as there's two left-wing paramilitary groups, one right-wing paramilitary group, as well as the secure the Colombian security forces, all vying for power and spheres of influence around the country. So there's no shortage of things to protest. Specifically, the main things that are being talked about um, on the ground right now are police brutality, the corruption in handling the coronavirus pandemic, pending legislation, as well as fracking by different oil companies um, that are not Colombian, such as I think one out of Canada. So where protesters are actually having success is that even though there isn't really one firm message being protested, across the board, they have found unity being in the streets together. And that is clearly really unnerving the government. As in early September, they opened fire on a crowd of protesters in a lower income area of Bogota, killing over 10. Popular Front um, reported a really interesting detail that in Bogota, it seems that Colombian security forces are really taking advantage of the lower income areas where they are enacting violence and just doing extrajudicial killings or beatings and basically taking it out on that population, whereas the middle class and the upper class of the city really are protesting, but it's very it's nonviolent, it's non-confrontational. So it's a it's a hard disparity there in the wealth gap and how those protesters are being treated. That being said, we have seen kind of violence continue to escalate. Now more information is being released that the Colombian government mishandled a lot of the relief funds meant for the population. So people who have been out of work for, you know, six, seven months who are living on a salary of only $250 a month are completely broke. They're dying of starvation. People are even hanging flags out of their windows, hoping to flag down NGOs in order to get some relief or get some food. That's how dire the situation is in Colombia right now. So we'll continue to keep you updated and collect information from all the incredible journalists doing a great job reporting from the ground down there. And we'll let you know what updates occur between now and next week. We're starting to see a humanitarian crisis take place in the northern region of Ethiopia, known as Tigray. This humanitarian crisis is playing out as a civil war between the Tigray region and the rest of Ethiopia just ended. The conflict started when the prime minister of Ethiopia took power in 2018 and started to centralize a lot of the judicial and economic powers to the national government away from the individual regions. This immediately made the Tigray region nervous as they were going to lose a lot of their economic and political position within the government. So they started to defy orders from the government slowly at first, but once Abi delayed the August 2020 election into 2021 indefinitely, they started an actual armed conflict. Now, of course, they were greatly outnumbered by the coalition of the Ethiopian National Defense Force and the Eritrean Defense Force. And after only a month of actual fighting, the Tigrayan people lost over 10,000, while the Ethiopian National Defense Force only lost what they're recording as 550 combatants. So you can see it was greatly outnumbered. So from the offset of this conflict, the UN has been very concerned, although they have decided not to intervene in any meaningful way, about how this conflict would play out since it was so uneven and uh, 
just difficult for the Tigrayan people to try to make an actual stand. So the Abi said he would work with the United Nations, make sure that the civil war was ended in a way that would not result in mass civilian casualties. But unfortunately, the UN is starting to report um, arbitrary arrests and detentions, killings, as well as discrimination and stigmatization of ethnic Tigrays in the region. So in order to seek safety, uh, many of the Tigrayan people are running north to Sudan. Now, the issue with that is Sudan is going through its own genocidal conflict as well in the Darfur region. It does not have the infrastructure set up to take um, up to quarter of a million refugees in its southern, southern region right now. Ethiopia claims to be working alongside Sudan to find arrangements to make all of these refugees as safe as possible. But if history has proven anything in this region, that's very dicey if that'll take place. This is one of the most um, important conflicts to be paying attention to right now, in my opinion. I think we could easily see this turn into a genocide situation if things aren't handled carefully. It is um, Tensions are very high. There's a lot of confusing border and political aspects to this entire situation. Luckily, the traditional news media has been, has been pretty good at staying on top of covering this. But that being said, it is very, very hard to get actual information out of Tigray because there's a real blackout, which is also worrying the UN as they're not able to get a lot of information from the civilians still living in that region. So anytime you're on Twitter, social media, it's definitely worth doing a quick search of the term Tigray, kind of see how that is working and changing over time because that's one you'll want to have on your radar is this could turn serious and brutal very, very quickly. Okay, let's take a look at Nagorno-Karabakh, where a Russian-led peace deal between the Armenians and the Azerbaijan government that took place after 44 days of brutal fighting that left over 5,600 people dead has been breached. Now, this is more than expected. Nagorno-Karabakh is internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but up until recently, it was fully controlled by ethnic Armenians. On September 27th, the Azerbaijani government, backed by Turkish forces, launched an offensive to retake the territory. Armenia made pleas to Western allies for help, but was largely ignored, and it was soon overrun. And it had to agree to the terms outlined by the Russians that left 2,000 peacekeepers in the region and awarded the region entirely to Azerbaijan. Many, many, many Armenian soldiers said no. We're not stopping. They descended further and further into the mountainous region of Nagorno-Karabakh because Nagorno-Karabakh is a very important cultural heritage site um, for ethnic Armenians. It is where their roots are. It is where their history is from, and they find it. They see it. They view it entirely as their homeland, and they're right, and they're refusing to leave. And that is where the degradation of these peace talks broke down. It's important to kind of keep an eye on this conflict moving forward. We've heard a lot of reports of atrocities and war crimes coming from both sides, mainly Azerbaijani forces against civilians in the Nagorno-Karabakh region, but Armenian forces have also been seen disfiguring um, Azerbaijani troops by cutting off their ears. It is a region that does not have a genocide that far in its rearview mirror. So the Armenian government is very worried about how this could progress, how the Turkish government is using language that is provocative 
towards the Azerbaijani government is worrying a lot of people in the region that Azerbaijan could become emboldened by this victory and continue to try to seize territories in Armenia. This is one even as traditional media starts to get a little bored with and move away from, you're going to want to keep on your radar. There could be some seriously brutal things to take place here, and it's important to know what's happening on both sides of this conflict. Now let's go take a look at what's happening over in America as election protests are starting to turn violent. In closing, we're going to take a look at protests that broke out across America this weekend as tens of thousands of Donald Trump supporters poured into the streets to dispute the results of the 2020 election. Trump has been making a very weak effort to throw an authoritarian coup on a democratically elected president of Joseph R. Biden. This has emboldened his base to hit the streets and try to protest the results of the election, despite officials claiming it was the most secure election in the history of the United States. In New York City, Donald Trump supporters stabbed four pro-democracy counter-protesters, and in Olympia, Washington, Donald Trump supporters shot one pro-democracy counter-protester. Even as legal options are exhausted, and just today, the Electoral College confirmed the election of Joe Biden, Donald Trump continues to call for division within the country. Luckily, it seems that America's democracy was bent but not broken this time around, but America needs to get one thing straight, and it's that it, the next attempt at an authoritarian government will be much, much more capable than Donald Trump and his administration have been. Thanks so much for listening to this first episode of Conflict Week. I look forward to bringing you the details of underreported conflicts around the world every Wednesday moving forward. If you liked what you heard, please leave me a like, subscribe, review, whatever you can do on whatever platform you're listening on, and make sure to follow me on Twitter at conflict underscore week for more details in between episodes as details become available for these conflicts taking place all around our world. We'll see you next week. Bye.